Purple Elephant Food for Thought is a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. We judge of a man's wisdom by his hope, knowing that the perception of inexhaustibleness of nature is an immortal youth. The wild fertility of nature is felt in comparing our rigid names and reputations with our fluid consciousness. Welcome to Purple Elephant Radio, where we discuss the mindsets, philosophies, and strategies needed to make art and tell stories that make a dent in this era of abundance. This is a show for the unbound creative, the undefinable artists, and the unidentified philosophers. I'm your host, Sean Green. Part of me doesn't know where this episode will take you. I've crafted an outline, sure, but an outline doesn't make up 30 minutes worth of talking. That map has been drafted, but now you and I must navigate through the territory of abstract ideas together. And that is the core of this episode. A question. How do we navigate the unpredictability and spontaneity of our progress as creatives when our goals, identities, plans, and maps do not match the territory we find ourselves in. I don't have a perfect answer, but I do have some new ways of thinking about planning so that spontaneity and flexibility are built into the design. This episode is broken into three categories, three parts, goals, plans, and identities. And as we dive in, I'll explain how those three differ, but also how they're all woven together. As a quick preface, this episode gets pretty technical, and the first two sections relate almost exclusively to content creators. I know that in the past I, you know, try to pull some generalized meaning when I'm talking about a certain medium in art, but for these first two sections, it's pretty hard to apply it in any other area of life. So you can listen if you want to, but if you don't currently or or plan to start building a brand, whether personal or professional, then I'd recommend skipping straight to part three on identity. The timestamps for each part will be put in the description. Part 1. Goals. Specific, measurable, tangible goals. Be careful what you strive for. Avoid the vanity metrics. Vanity metrics, for those who have not heard the term, are the stats on social media or digital advertising campaigns which seem to signify progress but don't translate to tangible value. This can be thought of for a Google Ads campaign in which lots of people see your product or advertisement, but don't actually make the sale. A 100% increase in clicks or impressions doesn't mean shit if you didn't increase your sales. And that's the core of this section. When it comes to setting goals, or even thinking about what do you want out of X activity, avoid the vanity metrics. For a small creative who is building their personal brand and doesn't have a product to sell at this moment, A vanity metric versus a quality metric might look like this. Likes on a post versus net followers gained in a month. Or an even better quality metric would be email opt-in subscribers, since that would be your data, not under some tech giant's control. Okay, but notice in talking about goals, I have not brought up personal goals. I'm speaking specifically about external, mostly outside of our control kinds of goals. I've spoken enough on personal goals in previous episodes, and I think for someone focused on growing a business or a brand, it's outside of our control goals where you'll find that the map does not match the terrain most often. 
but I'll speak on that more in a second. So when it comes to setting data-based goals, we need to distinguish between vanity metrics and quality metrics, and we need to measure the metrics that matter. Let me say that again. We need to measure the metrics that matter. According to Pearson's law, that which is measured improves. That which is measured and reported improves exponentially. Do you know which three posts gained you the most followers in the seven days following? Then do more of that. Post more of that. As simple as it sounds, it's too easy to get caught up in what got the most likes. But likes mean nothing if the liker doesn't opt into your mission. Seth Godin has a great line that goes something along the lines of, if you stop sharing your work tomorrow, how many people would miss you or be worried about you, etc. That, the caring audience, is the number you want to improve. Even followers become a vanity metric in light of people who care. Now I must contradict myself. I need to bring in the concept of paradoxical intention, which was realized by the great psychiatrist, philosopher, and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. It goes like this. The harder you strive for something, the more it eludes you. This is most apparent when it comes to our physiology. We become more anxious when we try not to be anxious. We can't perform in bed when we try to will ourselves to perform. That word on the tip of our tongue remains out of reach until we stop thinking so hard about it. In short, our conscious or willful ego blocks us from making progress by getting too caught up in the end result. To bring that to the discussion of external metric-based goals, the more intensely we strive to replicate past successes in the form of our most popular content, the more flops we're likely to have. Why? It's simple. You can't copy originality without losing the je ne sais quoi that made it original in the first place. You can't copy, but you can study its qualities and replicate its shell, i.e. creating the work that rhymes. Another term from Seth Godin. What does that look like specifically? Now, quickly think of or find your most popular content in the past year and ask yourself some of these questions. For Instagram, did you use a certain color palette or filter? Were graphics overlaid on the photo? Was it animated or a live action photo? Was it a video? Was it a stock image or something that you took? A phone camera or a professional one? Was the photo square, horizontal, or vertical? Were your hashtags chosen intentionally or impulsively typed in at the end? Did you use emojis in the description? For YouTube, how long was the video? Did you A-B test the thumbnail and title? Was the title a question? Did it include the words how-to? Were there words over the thumbnail itself? How did those words relate to the title? And I can go on. Now that may be overwhelming to ask yourself all those questions all at once, but the point is to train yourself to think about media structure rather than the content inside of it. And the likely chance that maybe you don't have enough content um, to make data-informed decisions, then make it a habit and a study to note the popular content in your niche. And not only that, but note what attracted you. What are the thumbnails that you clicked on? What are the posts that inspired you to look at their page or their website after viewing it? Become a keen observer of these trends and naturally the, the patterns, the structures that they're using will rub off on your content. I think this is a common practice in a lot of other areas of life, but because content creation is such a new thing, 
I don't think we've made the connection where, of course, I want to model how a professional tennis player is serving because that's going to teach me something. That's going to give me some strategy to be a little bit better myself. Because once you've discovered the pattern of what works in terms of how frequently you need to be posting, the style, the the basic principles of your content, you've discovered your plan. And all that's left is execution. Part two, plans. As a quick tangent, the reason structure is more important to realize as a creative than the content that fills the structure is because, well, if you know your niche really, really well, then content is easy. Content is like pulling water from an infinitely full well. And remember, content is not the same as art. Art is risky. It's innovative. It's not easily replicable. It's time-consuming. Content is like an obsessive fan account that posts frequently and always relates their media to the celebrity of their devotion. Except for most of us, our celebrity of devotion is a thing. It's a theme or a specific activity. I could, and currently am striving to, make 100 plus episodes about the nuances of the creative process. I'm devoted to it. But what I'm saying here is not risky. It's not art. At the risk of outing myself as a phony, all I'm doing is lecturing the bird to fly, which is a phrase I recently read from Nassim Taleb. I'm lecturing the creative to go out into the world and make art. Although I think what this podcast does is closer to lecture the bird on the beauty of the open air and the wind under its wings, the aficionado of the creative process. Because at this moment, most birds in our society fly in order to take massive bird shits on people who have differing opinions than them instead of flying for the joy of it. But I would truly be a phony if I didn't balance that lecturing, what I'm doing here, with skin in the game. If I didn't make art and films of my own. But I digress. We are in the planning portion now. We have marked our target with a red X. We have drawn a crude line to get from point A to point B based on the obstacles we can see on our outdated map. And now we must walk. How does that quote go? Man plans and God laughs. To mistake the map for the territory means to mistake words with action. To mistake an inspiring speech with the tough mental and physical labor that's required to reach the ideal. I fall for this fallacy pretty much once a week. And another way to think about this is with Alan Watts' phrasing. To mistake the menu for the meal. There are two angles to see this idea from. The content creator side, which I'll touch on in just a second. And the personal side. The personal side is crucial. Because it's all that matters in the end. To get caught in the world of abstraction, whether that's in idealizing what internet fame is supposed to be like, or forever wishing to go to some island paradise based on someone else's description of it. The danger of being hypnotized by words and ideals is apparent in history, but at a micro level, a personal level, it keeps us from enjoying exactly where we are in this moment. Yes, I'll continue to talk about branding and data and blah, 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 blah. But always take it with a grain of salt and hold it in perspective of what is really, really, really real. Otherwise, you risk starving in the middle of a grocery store. Or for a more modern example, to watch the sunset through our phone's screen so that we can capture the moment. I needed to mention the personal so that I hope you can put everything that you hear from this point on into perspective. And now we can dive into the content creator side of planning.
when it comes to planning as a content creator, that's when we find that the terrain is only planable to a small extent. It's as if you're planning a, a trek in a Hunger Games-esque forest, where people have ultimate control over when a forest fire will ignite, or a nest of deadly hornets will drop down in your sleep. It's an exaggeration, but the control is real, and only offset by the bureaucracy of these tech giants as they get larger and larger. So how do we navigate the digital, unpredictable terrain of social media? I think the answer is twofold. One, Avoid putting all your eggs in one basket. And two, always, always, always find a way to collect first-party opt-in data. Think email subscribers. These should be self-explanatory, but when it comes to putting all your eggs in one basket, I don't just mean spreading yourself out across all the different social media platforms that exist today. I also mean spreading out your content across multiple mediums. To turn this into a mouth-watering metaphor about food, imagine that your content i.e. the message you're trying to share with the world, was red velvet cake batter. We need to bake our batter into something so that it can be made edible. But cake batter does not need to be baked into one big cake. Maybe you'll make cake pops or cupcakes, or maybe you'll take an egg out of the recipe and make red velvet cookies. Your one big cake might represent hosting a workshop or a live Zoom call with, you know, 100 plus people. While a cake pop might be a new podcast episode and the cupcake a short video. Not only are these kinds of desserts different in format, but they also have different associations attached to them. A slice of cake we associate with community, with a special occasion. A cake pop might be bought impulsively when ordering your coffee at Starbucks in the morning. A cupcake falls somewhere in between. Maybe you don't want to have one too often, but it's individual rather than community-based. A blog or a video that you're meant to read or watch in your own time. The beauty of contorting your content to all these desserts is that the batter remains the same, relatively. A podcast can be transcribed and tweaked into a listicle blog, or cut down to a script for a talking head video, or vice versa. A, a listicle can become an outline for a podcast that expands on the written ideas. The core of what I'm saying is that you can't just serve batter to your audience. There's always going to be a few freaks who like to eat the batter before it's cooked, but we can't count on the mass amount of people that we want to attract to be like that. Notice how I've broken this podcast into three categories that build on each other instead of disjointedly explaining these ideas for 30 minutes. That is the baking process. Make your content digestible by organizing the ideas, then diversifying your desserts so that there's a treat for all occasions. But I'm beating around the bush when it comes to this thing called planning. When I think of a plan in the realm of growing a brand online, I think of content calendars and maybe some assets to be used for paid advertising. That is if you want to add an armful of dried leaves to your fire. But what if that was too limited of you? Content and your content calendar is just one part of a bigger equation. Remember what I said before about avoiding the vanity metrics. Yes, followers on a certain social media is better than just getting likes, and likes are just better than people who viewed your account. But remember, followers is not the end goal. Maybe for you, the end goal is Patreon subscribers, or you sell some type of product or course, and the end goal is to make that sale. I don't know what it looks like specifically, but, but unless you want to roll the dice as a brand ambassador, you're much better off you know, 
focusing on those higher level goals and not playing the the metrics game for whatever certain social media that you're working on. And with that being said, I want to offer this idea. We've often heard, I mean, I'm assuming some people have heard of B2B sales versus B2C sales, business to business versus business to customer. An example of the former would be Microsoft selling their office suite to large businesses, and the latter might be Apple selling their products directly to consumers. But how can we take that idea and bring it to the world of content creation? Well, what if creating you know, our regular content the way we think about it today, what if we looked at that as a C-squared to C-strategy, a content creator to consumer strategy? And the alternative to that would be C-squared to C-squared, content creator to content creator. So in, instead of getting faceless likes on your latest post, what if part of building your brand was recording podcasts with peers or some other medium that you use for collaboration? What if you were doing that not for views, but for connection with someone who could go on to become a part of your network? I've explained this a long time ago, but the point of recording and sharing a, a podcast or just a conversation in general, rather than keeping it off the internet, is that I think if it is something professionally speaking, if it is someone that you want in your network, we inherently shift our conversation to be more on topic and constructive when we know that someone else might be listening. You know, I, I think there's the the camera effect where we all act a little bit differently, a little bit nicer when we know we're being recorded. I think the same applies just from audio alone. But you might ask, what do you do with that? Okay, so maybe your strategy is to focus more on you know, connecting with people in your network and sharing those conversations, whether or not a massive audience is listening. What do you do with that? How do you capitalize on that? How do you leverage that? I'm sure not everyone is asking that question, but it's an important one to ask. Well, it's the exact same principle as having a, a business network as a, if you were an entrepreneur, suddenly by building your content creator network, if you do have a new product or something new to share, and it really is important and it's not, you know, just trying to make the easy sale. Well, then suddenly you have a person in your corner who not only has a following, but also understands the the effort, the work that goes into it. And that could be a person that you reach out to and say, hey, you know, we connected a long time ago. Or maybe you've been keeping up with the connection, but saying something along the lines of this is extremely important to me. Would you consider sharing this with your audience? I think it would relate to them because we have similar interests. We talk about similar things. Suddenly, by growing your network, when you have something new to say, something important to say, you have this exponential jump in the amount of people that you can reach. And of course, this is mainly professionally speaking. I'm not saying that you need to record every conversation you have with a friend for it to, to matter. But I do think that there's an added value when you connect to someone for the first time and schedule a podcast rather than simply a conversation. Okay, but what's another brand building plan that goes beyond merely posting content from your content calendar? Well, you could take a risk and do what I call sprint the first mile of the marathon. And by that, I mean, do some type of 30-day work-intensive challenge that attracts eyeballs to your page and bonus points if that challenge already exists and has a community around it. An obvious one I can think of is Inktober, if you're a visual artist. But in doing this strategy, you risk diluting your effort. 
If someone comes to expect this level of work, this level of effort that you're only putting in for a short time because, you know, it's it's your jump start. You don't expect to maintain, you know, posting every single day for years on end. But if someone expects that, you do risk setting yourself up to burn out and disappoint your audience. So that has that has its drawbacks. The final thing to look at that goes beyond just creating a content calendar and posting from it is to think about a long form piece of content that can act as a guiding light for a marathon length content strategy. I'll say that again, thinking about a long form piece of content or art to be a guiding light for a marathon length content strategy. For example, let's say you're a filmmaker. A feature-length narrative or documentary is a huge undertaking. It can't simply be a a one-time post in your feed. Instead, it can become the temporary idol for all your short pieces of content. Sometimes people go into this creator space with the mindset of, oh, I'll uh, I'll be a thought leader, a regular content creator, a vlogger, an Etsy artist, and they have no proof of a grand vision. By that, I mean they're not shooting for any big goal, except maybe those vanity metrics. They lack a grand finale, a finish line, in their long-term content strategy. Of course, if we saw this in a book, we'd say there is no plot, no climax, no story arc. But for whatever reason, we think our audience doesn't connect our content from last week with this week. In essence, when we only think of our content as individual and disjointed pieces of a brand, we lose the ability to design and actualize larger projects. And to clarify... I don't mean that your content strategy has to literally be this post needs to be seen for this next one to make sense and so on and so on and so on. I mean that nearly every post should have a call to action that directs the audience member to a larger project you've already built or are currently working on. Think online course, feature documentary, a novel or graphic novel, an album, a new clothing line, a new technology, an annual conference, a webinar. The list goes on. So to summarize part two, because it was a lot, (laughs) one, a content plan or a strategy is not about what fills the boxes. It's about designing the boxes in the first place. If you know your niche, then you have access to an unlimited supply of content. Therefore, it's more important to think critically about the strategy and structure of your media. Two, a grand plan or vision is not the same as the execution of that plan to say, We aim to gain 10,000 followers in a year is not the same as the effort and unpredictability of growing that metric, aka don't mistake the map for the territory. Three, always consider how you will own your audience data. Find ways to provide them content outside of the big platforms, either through a newsletter, podcast, or content directly on your website. The alternative is to be stuck in a Hunger Games terrain with no control over your environment. Number four, diversify your content in terms of the medium. There's a way to make written, audio, and visual content for any niche. Remember the red velvet cake batter metaphor. Five, it's not all about direct-to-audience content. Sometimes collaborating with peers, i.e. other content creators, can have a big effect on your brand. Always be on the lookout for those opportunities. And I personally think podcasts are the easiest form of this type of collaboration. And finally, number six, content is a supplement to your bigger aim. It's a sucker's game to aim at being a content creator if you don't have a large-scale project you've built 
or are currently working on that you can direct people to with a call to action. This doesn't need to be something people pay for, but it needs to be worthy of more attention than a single Instagram post. I know I don't always get technical on this podcast, but I think as I learn more about digital marketing, it's clear that these principles of marketing are more important than the tips and tricks that you might find on a place like HubSpot. Okay, I've spoken on goals, which for this episode was external focused, and on plans which contained all the principles of content strategy. There's only one thing left to speak on, and that's part three, identity. Not only brand identity, but also personal identity. And I'm going to go into how those two intermingle. To reference the quote from the start of the episode, we as human beings live with an inherent identity crisis seen in comparing our rigid names and reputations with our fluid consciousness. Tomorrow, I may decide I want to go back to college to get a degree in, say, chemical engineering, but almost nothing could be more incompatible with the reputation I've built over the last few years. The name Sean Green, for people who know me, might produce thoughts of self-starterism, or creativity, or comedy, or my weird food allergies. It might be associated with this podcast, or the words purple elephant alone, or writing, or filmmaking, but all those terms are pretty connected thematically. My reputation is rigidly creative, and it would take some convincing to show people that I've given up my pursuits in the arts in exchange for logic. It is not that we can't change the way people identify us, but it takes some effort and proof. A good metaphor might be that our identity is a 300-pound sled on a football field, and the only way to change it is by dragging it all the way to the other side of the field for a touchdown. Even if we're five yards away, most people will not change their thoughts about us until a point is scored, i.e. until they've been given tangible proof of this new identity. So we have our core identity. The two or three things people associate with us because of our outward passion for these things, or because it's obvious in our behaviors and mannerisms. But isn't there always more than what's been glued to our name? I mean, do people think of loving rap music when they think of me? Do they think of chess? Of metaphysics and philosophy? Of Hemingway? Of hockey? Of tennis? Of biohacking? Of coding? And the list goes on, and changes daily, and can never be pinned down without a new interest bubbling to the surface. This is because, I suspect, it's in our nature to dislike being boxed in by our outward identity. I mean, how can we grow and explore while staying in the confines of the labels that have been clipped to us from years, months, or even just days before? We can't, I'd argue. Which is why our rigid names will never match our fluid consciousness, and why life will forever be interesting. But there's the shadow side of identity which relates to the habits and vices that have become tied to us, even if other people aren't necessarily aware of it. We may identify ourselves with a bad habit without realizing it. And this, of course, makes it extremely hard to give up the thing in question because every dropping of a bad habit is a micro-identity crisis. The dropping of a habit creates a vacuum of time on our schedule, which, unless we've prepared for it with a new activity to fill the space, will create more pain than the original vice. I say all this to introduce you to the concepts of what I've termed compatible and incompatible personal identities. If you have that goal to gain X followers or make X amount of sales in your new course or produce X amount of videos in a month, but you also have an identity that says, I watch four plus hours of TV every day and I don't work on personal projects after work because I need to relax, then you have incompatible identities. 
Another kind of incompatible identity, and this one's pretty common, I think, is the one that says, I'm so skilled at X that I won't do any work for free or for cheap, even though my portfolio is sparse and outdated. And that is the arrogant identity. The point is that we are not a single identity. We are a collection of ever-changing identities, and some are more consistent and attached to us than others. Think about your consistent identities as things that you either think about or act on or, or do or talk about on a daily or weekly basis. And because of that, people associate those things with us. For all those consistent identities, we need to make sure that they're compatible between one another. A good heuristic to measure if two identities that you have are compatible with each other is measured by two things. One, you have to have enough time in the day to do both of them. If you want to make a podcast at 6 p.m., but that's when you eat dinner and watch TV, those are inherently incompatible. So there has to be enough time in your schedule, but also you have to ask if those two things either increase or decrease the effectiveness of the other. Here's an example of incompatible identities that don't overlap in terms of time, but you'll see that they decrease the effectiveness of the other. Eating fast food and sitting around for eight hours a day does not increase the effectiveness of your daily run or your workout. We may think that, oh, if I run more, if I work out more, then that offsets the damage done by unhealthy eating. But you have to look at it from both sides. Okay, maybe running and working out increases the effectiveness of your metabolism, but does eating like crap increase the effectiveness of your workout? No, you have to look at it from both angles. So those two things, running and in this case, unhealthy eating would be incompatible. But let's say you do have incompatible identities. You know, I've been giving the pretty easy examples to spot. I've been talking about vices like overeating and watching TV and comparing it to the, the beneficial identities of creating art that you want to be making. What about something that's a little bit trickier? What about two identities that are pretty even on the playing field? And a good example, I think, in my own case is making films, fictional narrative short films, and doing stuff like this, like the podcast. Those are incompatible because I don't have enough time in my day to do both of them. And, you know, right now I'm, I'm doing both, but I, I know in my head, I mean, clearly I have not been posting this podcast regularly. And just knowing that my schedule is so limited, they're incompatible. The way to decide which one to accept and which one to reject slash replace is to consider the purpose each one serves. Let's say for this, why do I want to make short films? Well, because it's the it's my favorite way to express myself. I love the creativity involved in storytelling. That's intrinsically rewarding to me. I don't care if other people see it. I get to be experimental. I get to be creative in a way that I can't in any other way. Okay, why do I want to continue to work on this podcast and grow it and build it and expand it? Well, I think that the message that I'm sharing over these episodes is hopefully going to convince someone to think more critically about their content so that they're not wasting everyone's time and eyeballs with just complete crap. I'm hoping that someone will listen to this and want to do 1% better, make 1% um, more effort in the content that they're creating, and also give the people who are making fantastic content the strategies to grow their brand and be seen in a noisy world. Now, I just 
spit those off off the top of my head and I cannot tell you which one needs to be rejected and which one needs to be accepted, but that's just a thought exercise to use for yourself for any incompatible identities you might notice. And I mean, most likely it's going to be you comparing a shadow identity, one of your vices, one of your bad habits with the identity of wanting to make art. Usually the purpose behind you know, why you have your shadow identity pales in comparison to the purpose behind making art. You know, usually shadow identity is comfort or aversion to pain and making art is the complete opposite. It's staring pain in the face and uh, not blinking. So, you know, it's a much more useful strategy for something that is a little bit uneven that, you know, in the back of your head that, okay, I don't want to be doing this vice. I don't want to, uh, to be watching TV for four hours a day. I want to find something else. But I've definitely got myself tangled in a tangent. So what does this rant have to do with brand identity? Two things. One, our brand, whether it's for business or personal use, is like us. Over time, our audience or just people in general will begin to associate two to three terms with it that confine its ability to grow and expand. And two, a brand is made by human beings which means that without getting a grip and an awareness on your shadow identities, you run the risk of constantly self-sabotaging or procrastinating on your work that you need to produce to build your brand and gain your following and, and gain those quality metrics. Yes, brand identity is the buzzword of the moment, but identity always arises from the person or people who build that brand. I think a lot of people inherently understand that brand identity is consciously built and crafted, but a lot of us have a blind spot for how that exact same principle applies to our personal identity. We can consciously craft the identity that we want. We can show people the way we want to be seen by them. Here's a quick example of consciously building an identity from my own life. I'd connected the link between my unhealthy eating with my extremely bad acne in high school, and it stemmed specifically from fried foods, gluten, sugar, and dairy. I had, without knowing it, made gluten and dairy a part of my identity. My after-school snack always had bread or cheese, and on Friday afternoons, I would go to a place called Pretzel Boys by my house and get a dozen warm pretzel bites with a big cup of melted American cheese. And if that sounds delicious to you, then there's a hint that you're identified with those foods. Even when I knew that food was contributing to my acne and invariably my self-esteem, I couldn't help but get those pretzels. Not because I was addicted, but because what else would I eat? I had a hard week of school. I wanted to relax with soft pretzels and cheese. I can't have a vegetables for a snack. That's not a real snack. And what I'm really saying is I don't associate that as a treat or a reward for a hard week. But my identity shift started with my outward declaration that I don't eat or drink dairy anymore. I pushed away cheese. I didn't drink milk. I only ordered the nuggets at Pretzel Boys, even though it was not nearly as good. I did this until it sunk in for the people around me that I don't eat dairy. That shift started with my commitment and was only difficult until the people around me were trained to associate me with being dairy free. And after that point, I didn't get offered ice cream or cheese. I didn't associate cheese as being a treat. And now my mouth doesn't water at the smell of pizza. I'm neutral to it because it's not a part of my identity. And there's more to the story, but the gist of it is that when you declare your identity to others, after you've found that resolve to stick with that thing, over time, people catch on. So I say all this to urge you that without consciously creating your identity, 
Your goals and plans will always fall short of your vices and old habits. I know most of this episode was about your content strategy and branding, but it always stems from the personal. Your habits and personal identities are what build the brand. It's not necessarily about having the perfect strategy or tactics to attract others. There's no need for a map to get from point A to point B because the territory is constantly shifting and your endpoint is constantly changing too. What you need is a compass and that is the identity that you aim for on a daily basis. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, it would mean a hell of a lot if you rated it on Spotify, on iTunes, left a nice review. Thank you.